Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, April 1st, we're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. Having heard Jesus' parable against them, the scribes and Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus with a question about paying taxes. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jacob Dandy. Pastor Dandy serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California. Pastor Dandy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, good morning. It's good to be here. As we get started today, let's talk a little context. We are in Luke chapter 20. What do we need to know about what's been going on around this text to help us jump in this morning? Yeah, so we're in the uh, last week of Jesus's public ministry. And actually, um, you, can, you could say that today is the um, last day of his public teaching ministry. He's still going to teach quite a bit with his disciples. Um, but this would be around Tuesday of Holy Week. And so uh, Palm Sunday has come. Uh, Jesus has had the triumphant entry. Uh, and then Palm, uh, after Palm Sunday, Christ has come and cleansed the temple, uh, which uh, maybe ruffled a few feathers. Uh, he cleared it before this, and now he's disputing with his opponents uh, in the temple. Uh, and they all want to find something wrong with his doctrine so that they can accuse him of something um, uh, worthy of either turning him over to the Roman governor to have him put to death or to discredit his teaching or to accuse him of blasphemy, anything they can to really get some dirt on Jesus. And so all the district di our different factions against Jesus start coming in turn to challenge him. Uh, you you have right before this the, the chief priests and the scribes come and ask Jesus, by what authority is he preaching, teaching, and cleansing the temple? Uh, and what Jesus does that's really brilliant here is that he's going to continually give his answers in a form of another question and deflect it back onto his opponents, right? And so they'll ask, hey, um, what authority are you doing these things? And uh, he'll go back and say, hey, uh, by what authority does John baptize? Is John's baptism of God or of man? Uh, and then, of course, their hypocrisy is revealed. Uh, they're silenced because they reject bon John's baptism. Uh, uh, but many people viewed John to be a prophet. And so they, they want to they don't want to get in trouble with the people, which is sort of ironic because they believe their authority is from God. Uh, they believe their authority is from God, but they fear the people. Right. Uh, and so Jesus kind of turns all of these things back on his opponents continually. On the other end of our text, uh, uh, right after, and I know you'll have a whole episode on this, but the, the Sadducees are going to challenge Jesus preaching about the resurrection. Uh, and he'll turn once again their question against them, saying, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he'll ask another question. How can you say the Christ is David's son when David calls him the Lord? Right. And so he's going to demonstrate that he is David's Lord, that he comes from before David. Uh, and that uh, he he is the son of God and the risen Christ, uh, and the living Christ who's going to die for the sins of the world. And so in between those two challenges, we come to today where um, a a unlikely alliance of, of people are going to come and stand against Jesus and ask him a question in order to trap him. Uh, we're going to have uh, the Pharisees. Uh, and the Herodians. We know from Mark that these are the ones who come and they're trying to ingratiate themselves with Jesus by following him, pretending to be sincere and wanting to know his teaching, while at the same time they're going to try to join forces against Christ in order to find some fault in his teaching. And that's where we're at right now. It is, it's it's interesting to watch this back and forth between Jesus and his opponents on this Tuesday of Holy Week. You know, every time they throw a punch at him, he dodges, and it seems he he lands one himself. There's this back and mm -hmm. forth. And you've said, you know, the the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees tomorrow or next week, they're they're going out 
to kill, they're out to kill Jesus. They're trying to trap him in one way or another. But I think this is, is worth just at least a moment of consideration. What's Jesus up to? Because it's, it sounds, I mean, it's got to be more than just showing that he's better than them, though he is. You know, he, he always has the upper hand. He, he evades their trap in a most skillful way. But what's he, what's he up to besides just getting out of their trap? What's his goal right now? Well, I, and really, I think what the thing that we need to realize in all of this is that, that Jesus is making the good confession about himself, right? Uh, that Jesus is revealing himself through these, these words, through this preaching, um, to, to be who he says he is, to be the Lord whom they, uh, um, uh, claim he is not. And, and, and to be honest with you, I would say that Jesus really, um, by even being in the temple right now and, and having them in his presence and allowing them to challenge him uh, is is being quite gracious. Um, I think his heart is for these people. Um, His desire is for these people. These are the lost of Israel um, whom he has come to save. And and he he is going to he's well, he's not going to leave them without the word but he's going to give it to them and he's going to proclaim himself to them and whether or not their, their hearts are, are ready or prepared or their hearts are right and set on receiving this truth and faith um, uh, is irrelevant. Christ is going to be preached and um, he's going to reveal himself to them. Yeah. I think identifying his purpose as gracious is, is right on particularly in light of the parable we looked at yesterday, where despite the fact that the servants have been killed one after another, when they were sent to the vineyard, still the son goes, the master sends the son is willing to go. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's there in the vineyard, reaching out to these tenants yet again with the word, proclaiming the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. So that, again, is the background for our text today. We're picking up the text now in Luke 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, on Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. That's our text for today. That's Luke 20, verses 19 to 26. Pastor Dandy, set the scene for us. We talked about yesterday's parable. The scribes and chief priests, they recognize what Jesus was doing, that he spoke it against him. So now they're going to try to to get him. Take us into those opening two verses. Yeah. So verses 19 through 20, uh, we see that, you know, they're kind of crafty um, uh, and and how they want to approach Jesus and how they want to to try and find fault in Jesus. They, They don't come up and just start shaking their fist at him and saying, hey, say that again, um, uh, so that they can get him to um, uh, say something incriminating. But they, they really want to come up and ingratiate themselves to him. Um, uh, and they, they, they're, they're pretending to be sincere. Uh, uh, the, the, maybe a, another biblical story that I'm, I'm thinking about um, that, that kind of helps me set the stage is the uh, story of Samson and Delilah, where Delilah just continually uh, proves herself to be not trustworthy, but continually tries to ingratiate herself to Samson so that she can find his weakness and turn him over to the Philistines. Um, here we have this with uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees with Jesus. They're they're pretending to be sincere. They're coming to act as uh, almost double agents uh, so that they can be around him uh, and catch him in something, catch him with his guard down so that they can go back and report to the council saying, hey, Jesus said this. You'll never believe it. Go get him. Right. Uh, and so it's it's very crafty and, and very devilish how they're they're planning on going about this. They, they really want to get him to commit some sort of capital offense 
some sort of bad action, speak something seditious against the Romans or blasphemous against the council. Uh, and so they they are going to really try to peel back the layers, get back in there with him and uh, um, uh, catch him with his guard down. Mm. And that's that's where they're at right now. It strikes me the way Luke writes this with the matter of they they're sending these spies to Jesus. And if you have any thoughts on who these like what these spies, who they are, you know, feel free to to comment. But it strikes me that Luke especially says their their reasoning. They want to deliver Mm -hmm. Jesus up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. We talked yesterday about the theme of authority and how even the chief priests and scribes had brought that up at the very beginning of this chapter where is Jesus getting his authority from? You know, Jesus doesn't answer their question outright because they refuse to answer his, but that theme of authority has been pretty consistent so far in Luke 20. And it continues here that, and and, you know, it's, it's not revealed directly from their lips, but the way St. Luke records it, they still don't get it. They still don't recognize the authority that Jesus has. They're looking to this authority of the governor and they think Mm -hmm. that's going to be the way they're going to catch Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and, you know, when you, when you think about the the authority of the governor and the context that Jesus is in, well, I mean, that reveals really what they want to do to Jesus, right? What they want done to Jesus, at least. Um, you know, who had the authority to perform executions mm. um, in uh, first century uh, uh, AD Palestine or in, in Judea? Right. Well, it was it was the Roman governor. Right. Uh, and and they really want to use that um, uh, that that arm of power, so to speak, or uh, to to put an end to Christ. But you're very right in noticing they they are failing to recognize the authority of the one for whom they are speaking to. Right. Because when you when you you think about authority, Right. Um, you know, a lot of times we and we'll, we'll get into a discussion of this later in a few minutes uh, about um, the the maybe two kingdoms of God. But when you think about authority, well, really, who does bear all authority? Um, who stands uh, granting authority to the governor or the Roman governor? Who grants authority to governments and civil powers? Who grants authority and specific authorities to the church? Well, all authority flows from God. Uh, it is his. It belongs to him. Um, uh, uh, any power or authority that is exercised in this world is given by God for his purposes, right? Uh, and so here we have Jesus. Well, what does Jesus say about authority? Well, he has the authority of the Son to forgive and retain sins. You know, you remember that from, uh, what is it, John chapter 8, Right. Um, uh, that if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But uh, 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 if the sun frees you from your sin, you are free. That Jesus has all authority over the household of God. And, and over and above that, what does Jesus say before he ascends into heaven? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now, that that really is where we base our our ecclesiastical authority as we live in this world, the the authority that the church bears, namely of forgiving and retaining sins, the authority to preach and proclaim the gospel, uh, the uh, um, uh, the authority to uh, um, uh, gather and live as the church of God. These things are granted by Christ, but also all authority in heaven and earth. That means that Christ is the master and Lord of lords, king of kings, the master of all the movements of nations and peoples in this world. Uh, and he governs this world for the good of the proclamation of his gospel. Mm-hmm. And so as we we think about this, you know, they they really are looking to the wrong authority. They should just be looking to Christ. They should just say, uh, Lord, help us. Lord, have mercy. Um, uh, uh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, your word is truth. Uh, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These are confessions of the authority of Christ. 
Uh, and this, this is where they should be uh, placing their hope, their comfort, and their focus at this point in time. Yeah, but yet again, they've failed to do so. We talked about that with Luke, the first text in Luke 20, that when Jesus asked their question about the authority of John and his baptism, they should have said, we repent for not believing in him. They didn't. After the mm-hmm. previous parable, again, they fail to, they recognize that it's against them, but they fail to repent. They look for yeah. this other authority. So that's the context. That's the, the stage is set for their question, for their trap. So take us into this, this trap that they lay for Jesus. What, how does this trap work? What's their goal? Uh, well, their, their goal is to get him to say something um, uh, either seditious against the Romans were to say something uh, that would uh, uh, put him in ill favor with the people. They're trying to just really get Jesus in trouble and trap him into a um, a question. And, and it's kind of like one of those questions. If I were to ask you, um, uh, oh, hey, Tim, how long have you been beating your wife? Well, no matter how you answer that question, you can either say, oh, he's just denying it or or if you um, or, or, you know, one way or the other, it's, it's one of those questions where you, you can't really answer it. Right. Because already somebody has put it into your mind that you've done this terrible thing, this, this un, unconscionable bad thing. Right. Uh, and so this is what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're, they're trying to get Jesus to say something that could really get him into trouble one way or the other. Um, and they're they're already looking to have him put to death. They they know that they have to have the Roman governor. Uh, make that happen. And so you think about it, if Jesus were to say, no, we don't pay taxes to Caesar, we have our ultimate and continual loyalty to God. Uh, he, that Caesar, he's a Roman interloper um, dwelling amongst God's people. Um, and we pray for the day that that Caesar would be driven out from our midst. Well, there you go. He's guilty of treason. They can bring him over to Pilate. Pilate can put him down, right? But if he were to say, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar, he's our rightful ruler, we must obey him, we must honor him. Uh, well, well, really, in that answer, um, which is true, um, and, and he should obey and honor, uh, as we all are called to obey and honor our earthly authorities, well, he could be branded as a Roman sympathizer. Uh, uh, the Greek word here um, for paying, it's actually tribute here for it, uh, for Rose, um, and the other translations uh, or uh, the other uh, versions of the story in Mark and Matthew. It's it's uh, Cain's son, which is poll tax. But here it's tribute. And you got to think about that. That's a a, um, uh, a amount of money paid by a smaller nation to a larger nation because the smaller nation depends on that larger nation for protection and life and defense and all of these other things. Um, and, and if you think about that in the idea of a, a, a Jew living in Judea uh, in the first century, uh, that's kind of like the idea of saying that, uh, uh, telling a Texan that New York has better barbecue or um, uh, uh telling a Texan that uh, you'll you'll never have a better sunset than in Kansas or something like that. <laughs> now, if you tell a, a Texan that somebody else has better sunsets across the prairie or somebody has better barbecue or, or telling a Texan they can get better Mexican food in Iowa, I mean, they'll, <laughs> they'll go nuts, right? They will, you will lose all credibility in their sight. Uh, and so here Jesus might lose credibility and favor with the people. If he were to say, oh yeah, pay taxes to Caesar, he's your rightful Lord. Um, uh, uh, they, they would have that against him. Right. So it's really one of those things where they're really going to try and get him to say no, so they can hand him over to Caesar and kill him. But even if he says, yeah, pay taxes, well, well, they can still even use that against him. Hmm. So either way they can hand him over to Pilate or be killed. They can discredit him. Um, uh, uh, and, and, Really, they, it seems like even how they ask the question, that's what they're trying to do is to hand him over to Pilate saying, hey, you speak rightly. You don't show partiality. You teach, teach the true way of God. Uh, you're not going to be afraid of these Roman interlopers. You're not going to be afraid of the Roman government. Um, you're not going to you know, fear God rather than men. You're going to give us a straight answer. And so give it to us. Should we pay this tribute to Caesar? Uh, and they, they really think they've got him in that one. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like a pretty airtight trap that they've drawn for Jesus. Uh, before we look at how he he springs the trap, I do think it's it's worth pointing out that in the 
hypocrisy of these spies sent by the scribes and the chief priests, even though they have no intention of making a good confession concerning Jesus, they end up doing it. And and mm-hmm. by the end, you know, when they are made to to look at, as fools in all of this, you know, they, they've said words about Jesus that while they didn't mean them, they are true. And it's, yeah. it's just very striking how, how even, even from the mouths of these hypocrites, these spies, these enemies of his, the Lord does end up drawing a good confession out of their mouth, even though they didn't actually mean it. What they said about Jesus is actually quite true. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, you know, those happen quite a bit throughout the New Testament, um, where where you have people who who are opponents of Jesus and hate Jesus saying things that confess who Jesus is and what he uh, what he's come to do. You know, we have it here. Oh, he teaches rightly, shows no partiality and truly teaches the way of God. Right. Now, now, that is a right confession of Christ. Now, their hearts didn't believe it. There was no faith in that confession. But then also you think about Caiaphas, right? And uh, John chapter 11, after Jesus raises Caiaphas from the dead, uh, what, what does Caiaphas say? He, he, um, uh, and, the, and all the uh, leaders of the Sanhedrin and whatnot, what do they say? Well, it would be expedient and good for the nation that one man would die for them all. Uh, and that Jesus would be this one man who could die for all of the people. Well, that's a right confession. Their motives and their hearts are far from the truth, but what they speak actually does reflect who Jesus is. Uh, and uh, it it, it kind of reminds me even of uh, uh, Balaam's donkey way back in uh, uh, way back in the Old Testament here, where where they they pay Balaam to curse the people of God, but what comes out of his mess or what out, what comes out of Balaam's mouth, but is praise, blessing, and prophecy of of god's blessings on his people and the promise of a savior coming into the world um and and really it does show us who ultimately does hold the authority over all the truth it's the lord uh and he'll make even opponents of himself speak this truth now we've got about five minutes here before our break pastor danny so let's get started into jesus answer we get that note from saint luke that jesus understands what's going on he perceives what they're actually up to and he begins to respond again with about five minutes before the break help us into how jesus is going to spring the trap yeah, so yeah, he's not fooled, right? Um, uh, and he gives the perfect answer. Uh, first, he <laughs> he um, he he calls them out for for who they are. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're they're certainly hypocrites. Uh, we see that in the the other translations of or, or the other editions of this story in uh, Matthew and Mark. But then, you know, what does he say? Uh, he he says, "Show me a denarius. Give me a coin." Uh, and this this would have been the the coin that was used for the poll tax. Um, uh, and there's something really kind of interesting about how how money worked. He as he sees through their false sincerities, he sees through their false notice. He knows their hearts. He's still their lord. He knows their play acting. Um, and as they're they're performing to make Jesus uncomfortable with him, uh, he answers their question by by kind of just revealing. Ultimately, once again, I think this question of authority and um, who is who and, and who demands what, right? Um, he answers their question by asking for a denarius and saying, whose picture on there? Well, it's it's Caesar's image stamped into the denarius. Uh, that's a day's wage. It's most likely a silver coin. Well, the only guy who could mint in the Roman Empire in those days, the only guy who could mint silver and gold would be the emperor. He had his imperial mints that were spat across the uh, empire uh, that he would mint the coins out of silver, out of gold. Uh, The Roman Senate was not allowed to mint anything but copper. Local governments weren't really allowed to mint things that were silver and gold. It was it was Caesar's thing. So he, he, he really is showing here. Well, who who minted this coin? Who distributed this coin? Um, who's demanding this coin? Well, it's Caesar. And so then Jesus says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then more importantly, as we go beyond that, and to God, the things that are God. Caesar cares about money. Caesar needs money to function in this world. He's demanding some of that money back. Give it to him. 
he controls the value of the money. He issues it. He distributes it. The government, the rulers, they do that. Well, give that to him. But more importantly, render unto God what is God's, namely, render unto Christ all honor and glory do his name. Render unto Jesus, this man standing in front of you, the faith uh, that saves. Uh, trust in him. Believe in his word. Uh, put your confidence in your faith in this one who is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Uh, and so here Jesus really sees through their question, tears their question down, turns it back up against them, uh, and then once again points them to himself. And that's, yeah. That's really great. Yeah, it really is. I mean, to watch, again, to watch the Lord spring the trap, to recognize what's going on, to see how he evades it and then turns it back to them, ends up making them look really foolish in it all. But then at the same time, teaching this true doctrine, which has lots and lots of implications for us as Christians. I mean, it's just a marvelous thing to watch as our Lord continues to teach during Holy Week. And we're going to pick up more of this from Luke 20 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron this morning. We're talking to Pastor Jacob Dandy about Luke 20, verses 19 to 26. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, April 1st. We're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26 with Pastor Jacob Dandy. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Tarabella, California. Pastor Dandy, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' response to the scribes, the spies sent by them. And you mentioned that Jesus calls them a hypocrite. Matthew records that for us, that they, they call mm-hmm. he calls them hypocrites. One of the things that I've I've read suggests that even the fact that they are able to produce this denarius for Jesus when he asks indicates their hypocrisy because part of the inscription on the coin would have been a, an acknowledgement of Caesar's divinity that according to Roman mythology, the Caesar would have been considered a god. And so the fact that they've got this coin that mm-hmm. pr- says that Caesar is a god is already Jesus showing them that they're they're not on the up and up that they their hearts are not in the right place they've got problems with this authority issue as we've been talking about and it sounds like that's part of their hypocrisy that Jesus is pointing out in addition to I mean tell us more about this hypocrisy of the scribes and yeah. chief priests yeah so um and I I I just remembered this uh uh it's actually the inscription on both sides. There's an inscription on these uh, uh, denarians or denarius. Um, and uh, the one that they would have had would have been during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and on one side of the coin, it would have been an image of Caesar's face, Tiberius's face. And it would have said Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Right. Uh, and one of the things that um, uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus did to make sure that all of his laws stayed in place after he died, that the next guy didn't come in and just tear him apart, is he uh, had the Roman Senate say, after I die proclaim me to be a god right uh and so uh and that's what a lot of the caesars did after their death right they would say when i die all of the things i enacted were of divine authority and i am a god you can't undo what i did or you're dishonoring um all of these gods right on the other side of the coin also every one of the roman emperors had the office of pontifex maximus right which is the high priest of all rome right uh, and so uh it's it's kind of interesting they bear and they're carrying around this image essentially of an idol and a false chief 
priest in the temple of the Lord disputing with Jesus about authority. You know, a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another. A hypocrite is somebody who is a play actor, one who will say, uh, I believe this, I think this, but then all of their actions indicate something different. Uh, and here, what are they having? They're having idolatrous images in their hands, in their pockets, right? Not to say that we can't carry our, our quarters, nickels, and dimes in our pockets here in the time of the New Testament, but uh, when you when you think about Pharisees in the time of uh, uh, this 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 time of uh, uh, first century Judaism, who were often zealot at, zealous adherents to the law, you know, you, you kind of see that they're they're kind of missing the point there when they're carrying around these denarii in the temple of the Lord. Um, uh, at, at, that proclaim a God other than the Lord God of creation. Uh, it, it does make a, and, and especially when you have the the true image of God set before them in the person of Christ, uh, the one whom they should recognize as their God and their Lord speaking to them. Uh, their, their, hypocr- their hypocrisy is very revealed. Right. So. And in the context of their question, that's that's mm-hmm. where their hypocrisy really comes to into full view because they're oh, yeah. able just to produce this coin and they don't recognize how that coin indicates that, oh, maybe their question isn't as innocent as they, they are act, oh, yeah. actually acting like it, it is. So that there's their hypocrisy. Jesus, again, exposes it. And he does so in a way that avoids their trap. He does not, you know, step into the the trap of identifying himself as a seditious person that the Roman government is going to want to put down. He doesn't fall into the bad graces of the people by saying, you know, you should pay your taxes. He he avoids the trap, but mm-hmm. he also teaches true doctrine at the same time, which is the marvelous thing about it. And these words of Jesus render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's are probably among the most famous words of Jesus from the entire New Testament. I, they, I think they get quoted often out of context, of course, but they get quoted yeah. very often both by Christians and non-Christians. I think these are pretty famous words of Jesus. So let's yeah. spend some time talking about what it means and what it doesn't mean. So help us into that conversation. What's the, the theology that Jesus is laying out here? Yeah, uh, and so... Uh, you know, St. Augustine and then uh, Martin Luther really clarifies this idea of uh, St. Augustine had this idea of two cities, the city of God and the city of man. Uh, but then also Martin Luther kind of expands that and brings that into his context and really into the modern context of this idea of two kingdoms. Right. Uh, and you have two kingdoms exercising in tandem. Um, uh, to achieve certain things uh, that um, uh, that there might be order in creation, uh, peace in society, but then also a right and continued proclamation of the gospel. And so uh, you have the left hand kingdom, right? Uh, and that is the civil government. Uh, it, and that's the, the one that is the government uh, and the kingdom of laws. The kingdom of powers, uh, the kingdom that exercises the sword, right? And then you have the right-hand kingdom, uh, and that that's the the kingdom of grace, the one holy Christian apostolic church, um, and that is ruled by Jesus via His Word through the means of grace. You know, so we we have um, the uh, proclamation of the gospel. We, we have the baptism uh, that calls us and creates us, uh, creates within us saving faith that we receive the Holy Spirit. We have the forgiveness of sins, the absolution, the office of the keys, right? And that's all functions and things that exist within God's right hand kingdom. But I think the thing that um, we want to really start off with and acknowledge is that, you know, whose hands are these? They're gods, right? Uh, These are God's kingdoms. These are things that God has ultimate authority of. God grants his authority to the church to forgive and retain sins, to preach his gospel, um, to administer the sacraments. um, uh, uh, And those flow from him, right? And then God gives authority to Caesar in this case, uh, but to civil governments, to 
punish evil behavior, to wage just wars, to uh, enact laws for the good of the populace, uh, and and to uh, uh, you know encourage and reward good behavior. Um, and he gives that authority to them from himself, right? These are things that God exercises. You know, God uses his left hand to curb sin via the sword. God uses his right hand to comfort sinners via the gospel, right? One is rooted, uh, the left hand is rooted in creation and our life in this created life. Uh, the right hand is rooted in the spirit of God. It's rooted in uh, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the promise of life and salvation that we have in Jesus, right? Uh, and so there are things that belong to both of these kingdoms, but ultimately all honor and glory and reverence and respect belongs to God. And so when Caesar asks us to give things that are under Caesar's authority granted by God, we are obliged to um, follow after and obey what Caesar commands. But then also, if Caesar asks us for things that are not given to him under his authority from God, well, then we as God's people are, are called to refuse to oblige Caesar in his request. We are refuse, to refuse to obey that command or that law given by Caesar. And we have plenty of great examples of this, or, or not so great, but um, clear examples of this as we, we live in this world. Um, you know, for example, um, uh, we all have to pay our taxes. I think this year it's April 18th. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're all going to have to file our ta income tax return. And you know what? That's that's fine. That's good. <laughs> Uh, 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 doesn't excite me to have to file my tax return every year, but it's good. Uh, on, on the same note, Caesar might uh, say some things are good or right and salutary that are actually not granted for him to say by God. For example, you know, we have in our culture and our society right now um, uh, uh, the, the freedom for women to abort their children, right, uh, while they're in utero. Uh, this is something that is contrary to the will and the work of God, and yet Caesar encourages it, and Caesar loves it, right? Mm. Uh, or um, uh, uh, Caesar has sought to redefine God's gift and covenant of marriage that he has put into his creation by saying that marriage can exist in any other context outside of one man and one woman. Well, this has not been granted to Caesar, God has not given Caesar the authority to redefine marriage, and God has not given Caesar the authority to grant women permission to kill their children, right, through abortion. These things are not things that Caesar can give. And when we as Christians uh, live under that, we are actually obliged, uh, according to our consciences before God, to say we can't comply or we can't agree with what Caesar has to say. And that's another thing that Caesar has very little authority over, and that is our conscience before God, um, uh, where where we know that our consciences are always going to be soothed, not by ad adherence to the edicts of Caesar, but our conscience consciences are soothed by the grace and the gospel of Christ. Right. And so we have things that we can render to Caesar. Uh, and these are good and fine and godly, and and we we should do so with a good conscience. But then there are also things that we can never ever yield or render to Caesar, um, because our consciences are bound by the Word of God, uh, and uh, we we cannot give to Caesar what God has not granted to Caesar. And that's the the big thing to remember there in Two Kingdoms theology. Right? Yeah, I, I, I want to go back to something you said toward the beginning, because I do think it's it's very important and it applies particularly to this text. You said that both of these hands, the right hand and the left hand, belong to God. That, mm -hmm. that this is both when we talk about the left hand kingdom and the right hand kingdom, we're talking about two different ways in which God rules. But in either case, it is God who is doing the ruling. And the reason I, I find that a particularly important point for this text is because it does go back to what we were talking about earlier 
with the scribes and chief priests and their inability to recognize real authority when they see it. They think that they're going to take Jesus and hand him over to the authority of Pontius Pilate as if that's some sort of authority that exists independently of God. They've, they've missed the larger point <laughs> that, yeah. that the authority that Pontius Pilate actually has, and Jesus will make this point to Pontius Pilate himself when he's on trial before him, any authority that Pilate has is only Pilate's because God's the one who gave it to him in the first place, and God's the one who's actually exercising authority through Pontius Pilate. And so again, I think that that's a really, when we talk about these two kingdoms, the left hand and right hand, to recognize that both things are gods. This is God yeah. ruling in two different ways, I think is is really helpful. And, and particularly when it comes to those things like taxes that we should give to Caesar, it's a reminder that it's not something we do sort of like with our, our you know, holding our noses, sticking our tongue out kind of thing. Yeah. But it but it is something in which we are being not only obedient to the authority that Caesar has, but ultimately obedient to the authority that comes from God himself. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and, and so uh, <laughs> uh, and maybe sometimes God, God calling us to pay taxes is, is fatherly <laughs> discipline for us uh, uh, so that we don't fall into love of mammon. Right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, in a lot of respects. Uh, but I, I think Dr. Bierman does a good job. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read his book that came out maybe five or six years ago. It's called Holy Citizens. Um, where he really deals with this distinction between the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom. He gives kind of two kind of guiding, uh, he calls them guiding axioms, but just really two distinctions that we can hold together um, as we think about God's left-hand kingdom and God's right-hand kingdom. And he says uh, the first one is that they are distinct from each other, but not divorced from each other, right? And so you have God's left-hand kingdom. It's very distinct from God's right-hand kingdom. Uh, for example, in God's right-hand kingdom, uh, pastors can't declare war, right? Um, uh, you know, and within the church of God, we're, we're, we're not going to uh, submit corporal punishment uh, against the members of the church who sin, right? Uh, we'll call them to repentance. We'll exercise the office of the keys. Um, uh, and pastors aren't going to lead armies into foreign lands, right? Uh, now, while historically that has happened throughout church history, that's not something really that the church is called to do. Um, uh, on the same note, the government will do such things, right? Um, Caesar or uh, federal governments or whatever they are, will wage just wars. They they will exercise physical or corporal punishment against certain types of sin, right? Um, uh, and and uh, they will exercise their, while the left-hand kingdom will exercise its authority by compulsion, um, uh, uh, the right-hand kingdom exercises its authority by the word of God, right? And so you have that first axiom, it's distinction without divorce. They're distinct from each other, but they both operate um, under the will and the command of God. And then the second one is cooperation without confusion. Uh, and, and so you, have, uh, you can have uh, members of the right-hand kingdom exercise authority in the left-hand kingdom uh, and, and vice versa. Um, without then confusing what those authorities are doing and how those authorities are being exercised, right? Um, and so you can have a Christian, for example, serve in the military or run for Congress or be on the local school board or run for mayor or president or whatever. Uh, and that isn't uh, driving them out from the church of God or causing their conscience to be afflicted. On the other end, you can have a, a uh, member of the uh, um, left-hand kingdom, somebody who serves in a role of authority, um, come before God with a good conscience, right? Martin Luther talks about this in his uh, treatise, Can Soldiers to Be Saved, right? Where he talks about soldiers in their left-hand kingdom responsibility, well, it's to, to hurt people, to kill people, right? But can they have a clean and pure conscience before God if they exercise that office according to the left-hand kingdom? And Martin Luther said, yes, they can, because they're, they're doing the things that the government should be doing, 
waging war or um, uh, punishing evil behavior and all of these other things. Mm-hmm. And so you have these two kind of guiding axi- axioms, distinction without divorce, saying, okay, they're distinct from each other, um, but they aren't completely separate. These belong to God. And then you have cooperation without confusion that, that these things can uh, – uh, we, we live with a foot in each kingdom, and we live under each type of authority. But we also can understand that, okay, these are the things that belong to God and solely to God, um, and these are the things that God has granted to men. Uh, and, and we can make that uh, distinction and understanding pretty well in this life, I think, under that kind of set of guidance. So how do how do Christians then live in that tension that does exist with these two ways that God rules both by his left and his right hand? How do Christians live in that tension and and particularly in those cases where it seems that Caesar goes beyond the authority that is granted to him and starts to get into that authority that belongs only to God and hasn't been given to Caesar? How do how do Christians live faithfully in that tension? Um yeah, so uh, we, we remember that our consciences are bound by God and our consciences are directed by God. Um, uh, and so, for example, I think, you know, uh, uh, I think we had a prime example in this past year um, where a lot of, of civil authorities were saying, you Christians cannot gather for church. Right. And, and I think a lot of them uh, at the beginning, at least, were were acting you know, nobly and trying to act for the best interest of the people in their communities and stuff like that. They were afraid that people were going to get sick. I understand that. But that 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 is really kind of a prime example of Caesar exercising power where he doesn't have any. Right. Um, Caesar does not have the authority to tell Christians they can't come together for church on Sunday or or any day, period. Um, um, uh, and then you had other things like um, uh, local government saying that Christians couldn't sing. Well, Caesar does not have the authority to tell Christians they cannot sing as they gather for worship. Uh, Caesar does not have authority to tell Christians anything about how they worship the Lord. Um, Caesar simply has the call um, to to ensure things in the left-hand kingdom, uh, to ensure uh, public safety and good order and all of these things, and he can do that, but never can he do that at the expense of the Christian's conscience before God. And so as we as Christians, and I know um, uh, as we live as Christians and as we live in both kingdoms, we want to give honor to Caesar where we can. But there, we have to understand that there are going to be certain times where we cannot do it, and we 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 can certainly uh, uh, say no, and certainly Caesar can punish us if we say no, um, and that's what we see actually with the the Christians in the early church. Um, the thing that they would not do was say Caesar is Lord, right? Uh, they they would give honor to Caesar. They would um, they would pay their taxes. They obeyed the laws. They were upstanding citizens. They they said yes, you are my rightful ruler and my rightful emperor. They gave him public respect, but they could not say Caesar is Lord. Uh, and what happens with many of these Christians is they are put to death for that. Um, and so they they will suffer often earthly consequences, but they do so with a good conscience before God, because they know that ultimately, at the end of the day, um, who stands as the sovereign judge over heaven and earth and who stands as the sovereign judge over even those who exercise this left hand kingdom authority? Well, it's God. Uh, and, uh, you know, when Caesar starts to try and usurp the things of God, it's our, our duty as Christians to obey God rather than men. Yeah, and we certainly see that, again, as you said, in the early church, in the New Testament as well, the book of Acts, we see the, the apostles obeying God rather than men. That even happens in the, the earthly authority given to some of the religious leaders. They speak those mm-hmm. words. I mean, so certainly a, a very helpful a reminder here from our Lord particularly the way that he speaks at the end, you know, to God, the things that are God's, that what, what is it that belongs to God? 
everything. I mean, these are these are all encompassing words of Jesus, not just words that deal with how do I live as a citizen of the United States of America, but words that really encompass my entire life as a, a rendering to God to give to Him what is due to Him. I mean, all all of the things that the commandments teach. This this com- these words of Jesus are so all encompassing. Got about mm-hmm. four minutes here, Pastor Dandy. Help us to wrap this text up. A challenging text, an important text from our Lord here during Holy Week. Give us the good news from this section of Luke 20. Yeah, and so I think the the ultimate thing to remember is that who really does have the authority uh, as we have this discussion going on between these opponents of Christ and Christ himself? Well, well, it's Jesus. And, and you know, when they talk about the image on the coin— uh, and they say, oh, that's Caesar's image. Well, Jesus says, yeah, render unto Caesar. That that belong, you know, if you want to give him that coin, uh, give him that coin. If Caesar says, give me that coin, well, give, give me that coin. Give that to Caesar, right? But ultimately, what is he calling these men to do? Well, they're calling, he's calling them to recognize the true image of God in the flesh before them. Um, he's calling them to, to see the guy who, who, uh, actually has, and I'm speaking in terms of creation and the fulfillment of what mankind was created and called to be, and even more than what mankind was called and created to be. We have the man who is the perfection of the image of God. We have the Christ. We have the Son of God in flesh, the one who is the holiness of God incarnate, the perfection and the word of God incarnate before them. Uh, and so to render unto God what is God in this context is to confess that Jesus is the Christ, to render this right confession that this man standing in front of them is their Lord whom they claim to worship. And so they should. They should worship him and they should worship him with a good conscience and with all joy because of what he's come to do for them. Namely, he's come to die for the sins of the world. And that means their sins and your sins and my sins and all of you listeners out there, your sins, Christ has come to die for. And he has come to redeem you uh, and make you his own. And I think that's the thing that we that we live under. And that's the comfort that we live under in all of this. You know, we may not always get the distinctions between left hand and right hand kingdom perfect. And we may misunderstand some of the things that God gives us in the right-hand kingdom or or have issues of conscience as we try to live in the left-hand kingdom. But we can always know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Redeemer of our bodies and our souls. And ultimately, this left-hand, right-hand kingdom all culminates with Christ's eternal kingdom that is fully revealed to us on the last day. Uh, and that's that's the hope that we bear from this text. Pastor Jacob Dandy is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church and School in Terrabella, California, helping us today with Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. Pastor Dandy, thanks for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 20 or any comments on the series, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. It's always great to get messages from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.